You've earned your sit down. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, let me pray for Miles. I mean, just ask you, uh, I know how to make someone feel relaxed. Is this your debut on a teaching, or have you done this before? This is my first time, baby. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, be gentle with him. Uh, Lord, I thank you for Miles. I thank you for the man you made him, Lord. Lord, I pray that you, as you do with all of us, Lord, I, my prayer is that you continue to mould us and to transition us. And Lord, I just pray for him right now uh, that he gives us the words that you've given him. Just help us to have ears to hear and just give him the faith, the encouragement and everything he needs this morning to talk your word. Amen. Try and be loud like this. Right, hi guys. So just first of all, is Janet Thomas in the room? Anyone? Or is anyone hard of hearing? Anyone hard of hearing? That's probably a weird question to ask. So if you're hard of hearing, if you're hard of hearing, what I've got at the front is I've got some sheets with the kind of stuff I'll be talking about on them. So if it makes it easier, because I know we don't have a signer here today. So if you guys want to come, there's they're just over there by Dick Hogman. Um, awesome. So basically, uh, some of you will know me, some of you won't, that's all fine. Uh, my name's Miles, I'm the community field worker here at Yeovil for Family. I work in this building from Monday to Thursday, nine to five, and the rest of the time I kind of play in it. Hey, baby. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and basically, uh, I was a bit surprised to be asked to talk about faith, because I'm not really, um, I'm not massively full of faith the whole time. I don't think that... Faith is an emotion or a, or a certainty that I'm often filled with the whole time. I'm just being real with you all. And um, when Adam came up to me in the coffee shop, we kind of bumped into each other as we often do. He kind of came up to me and he was like, Miles, I've just sent you an email. It's not a mistake. <laughs> well, Adam Dyer, you've given me 25 minutes with a microphone and a captive audience. <laughs> we'll see if this is not a mistake by the end of it. <laughs> so basically one of the first things I like to talk about is the big words of the Bible. And uh, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is how big a word faith is. It's absolutely massive. And there are lots of big words in the Bible. There's like love, trust, hope, um, glory, grace. All of these big words kind of grow with us as we go through life and we find out how they feel in the palm of our hand, how our lives are affected by them and how they're lived out through the spirit in us, living them out and through our experience of God and those things that he gives us. And so I kind of regarded faith as one of these things and it reminded me of uh, the way that C.S. Lewis talks about love and C.S. Lewis talks about love by exploring it linguistically. And I didn't want to turn this into a kind of a linguistic kind of thing, like a, oh my gosh, how clever am I, I know all the Greek words kind of stuff. But it kind of, for me, I guess words are really powerful. And words are big, words are important. Words shape the way that we have ideas about the world and shape our experiences. And so that's the kind of lens that I wanted to view faith through. I wanted to view faith through, you know, how many different ways can we see faith? How many different ways do we explore faith? And what does faith reveal about our lives and the different aspects of our lives? And so the first thing I want to show you is a diamond, um, if we can get that. Thank you so much. And um, 
I think faith is a bit like a diamond in the sense that a diamond gets cut by the craftsman into many different facets. And as the light hits this diamond, the light gets split apart into the separate frequencies that were always present in that light, but they are revealed by the diamond. And, uh, and so that's what I think faith can do. Faith can reveal different sides, different faces of God in our lives. And so the first thing we're going to read is we're going to read from um, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 17. This is a really, really famous passage. It is the passage that we call um, often the heroes of faith kind of list. And uh, so I'm going to read. So by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated among the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that he, the destroyer of the firstborn, would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea and onto dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the oldest lady in profession kind of thing. Sorry, kids. Um, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, uh, was not uh, killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. And so that's the first reading. What I find really fascinating about this passage is we often read it with that lens of calling it the heroes of faith. And that's quite a modern thing to call this the heroes of faith. And it skews the perspective that we have on it. And it emphasizes the individuals and their performance more than it does the fact that it's by faith, by faith, by faith. I find that really fascinating because heroes is a Greek, hero is a Greek word. It's a Greek concept. And we, we bring assumptions to that word. It comes with a lot of baggage. And, um, and the context is different here. This letter. Does anyone know who wrote the book of Hebrews? Any hands up? Any hands up? All right. If you've got your hands down, you're correct because no one actually knows. 
great. So that's really good. Um, you're all great. <laughs> so but what we can surmise from the content, what we can surmise from the way it's written, from the language uh, used, and from the thrust of the letter, from the content itself, is that the author was very, very likely to be a Jewish person, and they were very likely to be writing to a Jewish house church, former converts of the Hebrew faith, who had lived their whole lives in a culture where everything would have been structured, everything would have been um, arranged, everything would have been um, routinely measured by the Hebraic, uh, the Hebraic kind of faith. Everything would have been, you know, um, feasts. Everything would be saying the Shema in the morning. They would be wearing clothes that symbolized different things, tassels that symbolized the different names of God with certain amounts of knots. Like that's how much people have been immersed in their faith, immersed in this culture. And so he's not speaking to people who did not know the Torah. He's speaking to people who would have memorized the Torah. He's speaking to people who would have known all of these characters and they would have known the context. He's not just saying this is what it is. And this is the way that Hebraic people speak to each other and talk to each other often. If you look at Jesus' teaching, Jesus' teaching is always in stories. It's always in um, the subjective rather than the objective. And so for me, one of the things that I question when I, when I read this and I want to kind of propose to you today is... Maybe we read this passage a bit too literally. Maybe the author was actually trying to get his audience to think hard. Maybe he was actually trying to remind his audience of how complex and how human these people are despite being used by God. Sorry, that's the other way around. I realized that was quite a bad wording of that. That despite their complexities... God had the grace to use them. And so this is the thing I wanted to, I wanted to do. I'm not going to have time to do the whole, whole list, but I actually kind of made a list, an opposing list, of all the times these guys actually slipped up and how they slipped up. And it's crazy. We've got murderers. We've got idolaters. We've got adulterers. We've got criminals. We've got people who are inadequate fathers, inadequate parents. We've got people who did awful things. And we've got someone who is in the oldest profession, of course. We've got people who are actually human here, and yet they were used by God. And so my question to you is this. Do you ever wonder when we talk in church and when we, when we are surrounded by this subconscious culture about what faith is, that actually faith is a case of thinking hard enough and believing hard enough, and faith becomes a thing of our performance rather than about grace? Because I certainly do. I certainly don't think when we read this passage... Uh, through that lens of thinking about whether the author was trying to make us think hard about what faith truly is, I sometimes forget that all these people are human. I sometimes assume that they were all perfect. And I don't think that's what the writer here is doing. And so this is the first thing. that. Um, in fact, can we have the... Oh, I've got the clicker. Oh, look at that. So basically, this is what faith talks about in terms of perseverance. And the context of this letter is he's talking to people who are persecuted, people who have been, uh, who probably, probably had friends stoned to death. Because the, the Jewish 
um, context for these Christian converts would not have been kind to them. And we see that in the book of Acts. And so he's trying to inspire them, trying to encourage them. But I think he's also trying to indicate something about what real strength is, what real faith is, and what real perseverance that is sustainable looks like. And I think that he's saying perhaps something like this. This is my, this is my interpretation of it right now at this time of my life. I think the author might be saying that real perseverant faith, real strength, comes from real honesty. Real honesty with ourselves, real honesty with others, and real honesty with God. And so that's what I think faith can teach us about real strength. And now I'm going to click the clicker again. Oh, it's not working. Well, hey. Now, the next kind of thing I want to talk about, and we're going to go for our next reading now, and our next reading is in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 50. We're going to talk about faith as a power, because when I started reading about faith, the other thing, the other lens that I started to see was I started to see that in the ministry of Jesus and the Gospels, that faith is not just strength, faith is not just perseverance, but faith is the raw power of God unleashed into the world and it seems to bear the character of God as well in terms of the character that it expresses but also in terms of the way that Jesus engages with his people but also in terms of the people who have this faith and so this next passage is this now when Jesus returned the crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting um so I'm just having a message here I didn't expecting him Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there, who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And when I read this, I really wanted to ask, who is this woman? Because there's something remarkable about the conditions of that scenario. There's something remarkable about the physical scene, about how, how much of a crowd there is, and how desperate this woman is to touch Jesus, just even the edge of his cloak. She doesn't want to be noticed, but she wants to get close. And so I did a little bit of digging and went to um, Leviticus 15, and uh, I found that a woman with the condition that she had would have been a complete outcast from society. It's very, very likely, I mean, obviously it was a pretty awful time for women anyway, to be honest, and there's a whole talk to be done on the way that Jesus subverts a lot of those social boundaries when he interacts with women, and the way that he executes justice through the way that he relates to women. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about was this woman. And I wonder what this woman's life was like. I wonder how 
how she would have lived day to day. I wonder whether she had had a husband who then possibly divorced her because of the kind of stipulations that he would have had to follow because of her condition. I wonder how old she was because it doesn't seem like she's very young. It seems like she's probably, possibly a widow, possibly divorced, possibly single for the whole of her life. 12 years is a long time, given that the life expectancy of that time was about 40. It's quite a long period of your life to be dealing with that kind of condition. And yet, she sees Jesus and she's desperate to go and meet with him and find healing. And so for me, you see these behaviors, you see that she's in a crowd, and that indicates that already she's not obeying the rules, because she shouldn't be anywhere near people if she is actually supposed to be following the rules in Leviticus 15. She shouldn't be there, but she's taking a risk. She shouldn't touch Jesus if she has that condition, but she's taking a risk. And she didn't know Jesus. This is, a, this is a stranger who she has just heard about. And yet she breaks all these rules to meet him. He could have turned around and actually said to her, you've made me unclean. Because the, the rules and stipulations were that if she touched him, he would have to be outside of society for seven days. He would have had to leave that community if he was following the same stipulations rather than following the way of grace. And so for me, I find this fascinating because she's taken a massive gamble here. She who has experienced for at least the last 12 years a world of rejection and a world of pain has risked possibly the greatest rejection and pain of her life to touch Jesus. And she's healed. I find it really fascinating, the fact that she wants to run away as soon as she's healed. She's healed. She gets what she wants. But there's something about the way that Jesus handles this situation that's really fascinating. And I always draw your attention to the fact that he was on his way to somewhere else. He didn't have to stay. He had every reason to go, okay, great, cool. We'll crack on. She's about to die. I need to go and heal her next but he stops. And this is what indicates the fact that he's so intentional about the way that he handles this tiny snapshot of relationship with this woman. He drags this scene out and he brings her into the center. And the words he uses are few, but they completely destroy all of the rejection of those last 12 years because he calls her daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's healing within healing. It's more than just a physical healing. What Jesus' focus is, is not just her stopping bleeding, not just a physical function stopping, but bringing this woman who was completely rejected into the center and saying again, I will restore your youth. I will restore your life. I'll restore the years the locust has eaten. And so for me, this power of faith because Jesus doesn't say, your faith is the conduit through which my power is revealed. He says, your faith has healed you. Faith is the power. This desperation, this surrender, this disregarding of the rules to just get to Jesus, that's the power. And that's what I find compelling about this woman, because that takes an immense amount of bravery and vulnerability. It's not just thinking hard enough or just believing hard enough. It's reaching out. 
And then he says to her, daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace. I just, I love this woman. I just, I really wish, I wish one day I would get to meet her. And so what does faith tell us about power? Well, this woman, one of the reasons why I think that she took that great risk is because she would have heard, similar to the Hebraic people in the letter to the Hebrews, she would have spent her whole life in a culture where she would have been told the names of God, that he is provider, that he is healer, that he is the God who sees. And Yeshua, it's a powerful thing to pray in the name of someone because there's something about the Hebraic names that I find fascinating because they're more than just an indicator of someone. They're more than a name tag. They are something that expresses the character and manifests the power of God because they tell the story. And Jesus' name means the rescuer. And so it feels like to me that the gamble is based on an understanding that his name is powerful, that his character is expressed by the name. And then the power of this scenario is that the power of God, in a world where power is abused so much, in the world where power destroys lives and corrupts character from the inside out, the power of God has a different character entirely. It heals broken bodies. It brings people from rejection and from marginalization into the center and says, I've adopted you. And so that's what I feel that faith speaks about in terms of our, in terms of our, um, yeah, in terms of our identity, in terms of also the identity and the power of God. I'm not going to get used to this whole clicking thing. There we go. All right. So the next passage we're going to look at goes back to Genesis 15. And I want to have a little bit of an examination of Abram. Uh, this is Genesis 15, and we're going to just look at 1 to 6. And so after this, the word of God, the word of the Lord, came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have, been given, sorry, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And again, for me, this is another text. When I read it and when I meditated on it, and I thought about it through the lens of what I'd been told about faith my whole life and what I'd received from kind of conventional church culture, that, that faith is about believing hard enough. Faith is about not having any doubts. Faith is about not having any problems. I read this, and I was like, Abraham, you need to practice some gratitude. Serious. This guy's just defeated seven armies. He's got loads of like manservants. He's got loads of things. He's, for the ancient world, this guy's got it sweet. This guy has it so good. And he's also a bit sketchy as well. When he gets to Egypt, he's so afraid that he makes his wife the concubine of Pharaoh by saying he's, that she's actually his sister. 
he's not he's not actually someone who's got this per perfect kind of um, way about him. He's not someone who's um, straight out of the box, white picket fence, kind of like middle class Christian. He's not that at all. And we seem to kind of view these texts sometimes through that lens a bit too much, rather than regarding actually the society as being very difficult and very um, problematic in lots of ways. And so when I read this and I, and I actually thought about this, this guy has just defeated seven armies. He's made a whole load of money off of his wife being uh, Pharaoh's concubine and staying in Egypt and kind of enjoying the favor of that and the economic benefits of that. He goes to different lands, and every time he goes to a different land, he makes an impression. The rulers of that land want to know him, and they want to make sure they're on good terms with him. They want to build their wells in the right places, all that kind of stuff. And yet here, he's met by God. God says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God is saying, I'm your reward. And the first thing that Abram says I don't have a son. What's up with that? That's kind of weird. This is, it's a really odd reaction to think the creator of the universe has just taken you aside and has gone, I want to spend time with you. I think you're awesome. And I want to make the main thing of your life a relationship with me. And I made the universe. And the first thing he goes is like, I don't have this thing. It's just really odd. It's really odd. And so I looked at it. And I was kind of in that mindset of going, what's wrong with Abraham, man? He's got, he's got some issues. And, um, and then I realized, actually, what Abraham's doing here is he's being real. He's being real with God. He's not standing on ceremony. He's not thinking about how is the, what's the appropriate way to address God. He's not thinking, oh, I need to practice gratitude. He's letting himself off the hook and saying, I just want a family. I just want a son. I just want someone who's going to be made in my image, like I'm made in your image. And I found that quite humbling because there's a, there's a pain to that. And I think that in our relationship with God, we need to be real with God about the stuff that we go through, about the desires of our hearts. Because again, real honesty leads to real courage, leads to real faith, leads to real perseverance leads to a real relationship with God. If we're wearing masks with God, if we're wearing masks saying that actually we need to be the ones practicing gratitude the whole time, we need to be coming up to church on a Sunday wearing our kind of like everything's great kind of mask, we don't get to a place of realness with our community, we don't get to a place of realness with God, we don't get to a place of realness with ourselves. And that's what I think that Abraham is practicing here. And that's why I think the moment that follows is so beautiful. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars, sorry, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So there's this moment of intimacy, and God fulfills the promise anyway. God fulfills the promise and makes the promise, even though he knows that Abraham is going to take things into his own hands and have a son, but through Hagar. And I find that fascinating, that that speaks so highly of grace. And so basically, I think I'm probably out of time now, aren't I? But does anyone want to throw a shoe at me? <laughs> I'll trust you guys. I literally, I'll give you permission to throw a shoe at me if I go over time. I'm looking at you, Malcolm. <laughs>
your shoes are too nice, Alan. <laughs> awesome. So basically, I wanted to tell you a bit of a story about why, why I think this perspective let me off the hook and, uh, and allowed me to be real with God and real with others and real with myself. To a certain extent, I think it's still a battle. I think it's still something that we have to struggle with every day. And I think that's fine. I think so much of this stuff is an everyday kind of measure of checks and balances. Because if we didn't have the checks and balances and if we didn't have that process, we would be self-reliant. We would be dependent on ourselves rather than dependent on God. And so I went away to this, um, to this hike with a bunch of Christian guys, about 150, 200 of them, and it was called Fourth Musketeer UK. It was last year, last April, it was up in Scotland. We were climbing up Monroe's, and it was basically called an extreme character challenge. And it was 72 hours of just getting beasted and um, going up and down mountains, having to do navigation stuff, but then interspersed with also quite deep talks about father stuff and about you know, emotional stuff, about accountability, all these different things. And to be honest, it was the hardest physical thing I've ever had to do. It was really, really tough. And I started out really strong. I started out you know, pretty much being physically the strongest in my group and having that mask of like, I'm doing okay, I'm doing great. And I was there with some older guys, and uh, who, some of them had like, injuries, some of them had knee problems, stuff like that. And anywho, we get to this point, we're on the highest peak that we've climbed. It's 1,000, it's called Loch, no, it's not called that, Ben Laws. It's one of the highest um, Munros in Scotland. And I'm not massively like, outdoorsy, I probably look like I should be. I tuck my trousers into my socks. That's another bit of evidence that I have some work to do. I'll be taking advice from my man, Alan Guy, on how to dress. <laughs> You've got a good style. Um, but basically, one of the things that I found was that actually, all of a sudden, my mask had to fall off. And it had to fall off in front of this bunch of guys. And I was there, and it was nighttime. It was, we were covered in snow. My arms were numb up to my shoulders. My beard, which was a lot longer back then, and my hair was white with ice. And we had head torches on because it was nighttime. And we were on an icy ridge that's probably about as wide as this black strip of the stage. And I was thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I was rehearsing in my head, like, okay. I need to tell these guys, you know what, I don't have anything to prove. I, you know, I, I've rehearsed my speech and everything like that. And what was really strange was we got to a certain point beyond which it was really, really kind of like, you know, the, the main bit of danger was behind us. And I kind of said, guys, we need to talk. I'm going to shoot straight with you. I really want to quit. When we get down there, I'm going to say, that's great. I feel like I've done really well. I'm going to go off, hold my head high, that kind of stuff. That's it. And then everyone else was like, I want to quit too. <laughs> that sucked. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, we were just actually laughing about like, how tough that was and how difficult that was. And that was cool. And it was fine. And the spell was gone. The spell was broken. Because when we hold fear inside of ourselves and wear a mask, that's when fear has the power. And that's when all this stuff divides us from relationship with God. And this is why I think, I look at Abraham, I look at his realness with God, and I think, wow, that's true faith. 
I want to talk a little bit about the Hebrew word that would have been used there. And uh, the exact word there is a, is a kind of, um, it just changes a little bit just because of the grammar. But essentially, the word in the Hebrew would have been emuna. And emuna is a little bit like a tree. Right, click. Well, hey, that worked. So basically, it's like a tree in the sense that actually words do not grow in isolation. They grow and they interact with other bits of language. And emuna was a kind of word that people would use when they were trying to pitch their tent on particularly solid ground. It was a word that was born in practical circumstances to describe a practical thing. And that's what we talk about when we talk about faith. But it's interesting because we think about faith as believing hard enough. We don't think about faith in terms of this really, really practical thing of like, what's solid, what's reliable, what's dependable? And the other thing is that these branches, one of them is the word amen. Amen comes from amuna. The, word for, the Hebrew word for truth is emet. It comes from amuna. All of these words interact with one another. And they talk about solidity. They talk about standing on solid ground. And I think the solid ground is knowing that we can be real with God and actually get met with grace. Because all of the scenarios that we've talked about so far, and all the scenarios that we could have talked about, because I had loads, and I was really, really enjoying getting super nerdy about this stuff, um, was actually like, all of them, all of these people get met with grace. I think the only reason why we often don't meet with grace through being honest with God is actually sometimes we've met with... Um, We've met with hardness in, the, in our lives, in our daily lives. Hardness from each other, hardness from ourselves. Maybe comparison as well, comparing ourselves to others, comparing our faith with others, rather than giving ourselves the grace that God gives us. And so that's the final thing that I kind of really want to say, is that actually I feel that faith is a little bit like that tree. It connects to all the different parts of our lives. It connects to all the different aspects of our lives. It's, it's something that defines our lived experience. And it's not something that I can say, faith is this or faith is that one thing. I think it's far bigger than that. And it's a little bit like a desk. I don't have a picture for this one. It's great. I don't have to click the thing. So it's a little bit like the desk of someone you know really, really well. It's like you've walked into their room or walked into their study. And you see the letter on the table. You see the coffee cup, the steam spiraling up into the air. You see the jacket slung over the back of the chair. It's the evidence that God has been in our lives and is still at work in our lives. It's whether it's through that miraculous power of healing or the bringing of people in from the margins or whether it's through the trust that we have or the strength and the transformation in ourselves when we meet with that grace. I think it all starts from that being real with God and real with each other. And so if we could have the worship team back up, that'd be amazing. Thank you very much. I've been Miles. Have a good night.